the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Today I have Dr. Linda Bellhorn, rheumatologist, who's going to give us some insights on common rheumatologic conditions. Welcome and good morning. Well, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Today, what I was hoping we could do is just hopefully help our listeners develop a differential diagnosis when we're thinking about rheumatologic conditions. Could you give us a little background on the etiology of some of the common conditions we might see in an orthopedic clinic? Yeah, so you would be seeing rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, but um, those are two of the more common autoimmune disorders that we do see, as well as other connective tissue diseases such as Sjogren's syndrome. And they all present with an inflammatory arthritis. And the difference between that and osteoarthritis is often the degree of inflammatory findings on the exam and or laboratory work. So again, while all patients may have some stiffness in the morning or osteoarthritis patients, it may be initially 15 to 30 minutes, whereas the rheumatoid arthritis patients and lupus patients, it may be several hours. Also, as far as the physical exam findings, we would definitely find more what we call swelling or synovitis in the joints. Um, sometimes that's not always the case, but in our lupus patients, there may be fewer inflammatory findings than our rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, you certainly can get deformities. That would um, certainly be much more common in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, thankfully, with some of our treatments, we are seeing fewer deformities in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, you do find patients complaining about other systemic things, such as fevers or fatigue, rashes. Those could be a clue that it might be a multi-system illness. Right. You know, I always think about JRA when I have a adolescent or a young person coming in with unexplained back pain. And it always makes me think, mm, maybe we should check for JRA. Are there any other, I don't know, uh, specific physical exam or anything that we should think about uh, when we see these folks? If you mentioned back pain, that is one that's very different. Again, just the, the history um, when we have patients who have um, ankylosing spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis, they were more likely to see back pain in those disorders. One of the most important things to distinguish from mechanical back pain or osteoarthritis in an older person would be the presence of back pain that, again, with that morning stiffness. And sometimes the pain will be so significant that we get the history that people get up in the middle of the night to walk around because they're in so much um, pain or stiffness. And the pain improves with activity rather than with most types of mechanical pain. Typically, activity would be something that would bring the pain on. So sometimes those very key historical features can be a clue to make sure that that, that is something you're considering an inflammatory origin to the back pain. And sometimes radiographs may be ordered just to the lumbar spine um, and not the sacroiliac joints, even though those may be viewed on the lumbar spine films. Um, sometimes dedicated x-ray may pick up something for ankylosing spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis in the sacroiliac joints if those are ordered directly. Mm -hmm. um, so that that is a very important, I would just say, the history and the, the nature of the back pain more so than the physical findings, can distinguish inflammatory back pain from mechanical back pain. Right, right. So history is very important, trying to develop your differential diagnosis with these folks. Exactly. You know, the, the other thing that I think about with rheumatology, and I know this is very uh, basic, but uh, symmetric joints, 
you know, bilateral elbows, bilateral knees, bilateral hips. Is that something that is common? Most of our um, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Sjogren's, our connective tissue disease are typically symmetric and bilateral. And often the small joints of the hands and feet may be an area that's more predominant. So, um, again, not that you can't have bilateral, say, osteoarthritis of the knees or something, but that certainly can be unilateral. Um, if it's large joint involvement only, it would be less likely to be one of the connective tissue diseases. Mm -hmm. History and or when you get your physical exam, monoarticular would bring up a totally different differential diagnosis than a polyarticular diagnosis that would be symmetric. Mm -hmm. You know, talking about diagnostics, would you recommend a basic screening panel for folks like me that are seeing patients in clinic and just trying to differentiate if they might have a rheumatologic condition and referral? Absolutely. We do like to have the anti-nuclear antibody um, as part of the screen that is classically considered to be um, what we see in lupus, but we do actually see it in any of our connective tissue diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis and the juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, as well as the Sjogren's syndrome and others. So even if you're suspicious for pure rheumatoid, we do find some patients that may have negative labs with the exception of that one. So we, we include an anti-nuclear antibody. Mm -hmm. There are two tests that we do when we do suspect rheumatoid arthritis. Most people are familiar with the rheumatoid factor. The other one called the CCP is relatively newer, although we have been using that for more than a decade. And we do find that some of our rheumatoid patients um, are positive for rheumatoid factor, but negative for CCP, or vice versa. They'll be positive for CCP and negative for rheumatoid factor. Some are positive for both and some are positive for neither. So that is something I think that a lot of the primary care doctors are uh, more aware of that we do strongly prefer both of those to be checked, even for screening purposes, mm -hmm. the ANA, rheumatoid factor, CCP. And then with the inflammatory markers, we do usually like to get both the sedimentation rate and the C-reactive protein. There are instances where in general, we would see both would be elevated. Sometimes you can have striking elevations of one and the other is normal. And we don't always fully understand that, but we do observe it. So those two inflammatory markers would be recommended. Mm -hmm. Those five would be a pretty basic screening panel. If one did expect um, the inflammatory back pain, the HLA B27 would be very helpful also. Mm -hmm. Having worked with you before and understanding some of this, I know that when you get the titers, especially of the ANA, and it's kind of borderline, We've talked about, well, should we refer or should we not refer? Um, if you get a borderline positive result on some of these, I mean, is it appropriate to refer to rheumatology or is it something that, you know, should maybe do some other workup or what do you think about that? Right. And I think sometimes that comes down to a judgment call. Typically, the first level of positivity for an ANA is 1 to 40. And we do find that on average, um, the titer that we feel to be significant is 1 to 320 or greater. And so for this test, the titer will go 1 to 40, then 1 to 80, and 1 to 160. Um, but we do have cases where people do have very significant um, clinical presentations but don't have that titer that's greater than 1 to 320. So I think we always say just add an ounce of common sense or your clinical judgment. If you are very concerned about someone um, that they would have an inflammatory disorder, um, we are more than happy to see people even with low positive ANAs because 
um, rules are meant to be broken in medicine. And even though that is a generally true statement, we do definitely see people with, with active disease with lower titers. Um, if your clinical judgment is, well, I was just checking that just to be complete. And I really thought this was more mechanical. Um, you know, that's something that it maybe could be repeated at some point or the patient could be observed, you know, to see if any other inflammatory symptoms develop. Mm-hmm. That's great for everyone. Just to recap, uh, basic screening, ANA, rheumatoid factor, or CCP, SED rate, and CRP would be a good basic screening panel for folks. And then if you're worried about a spondyloarthropathy, an HLA B27 would also be a good lab. Most people that have the rheumatologic disorders are managed medically. I, I think methotrexate, steroids, and biologics. I know that's a very basic way to look at it, but Kind of how do you manage folks? So for many of our um, uh, patients with autoimmune connective tissue diseases, methotrexate is a mild immune suppressant that we've been using for rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis for almost three decades at this point. So we have a very long track record of its safety. Um, Some people are very fearful of it. If they ever Google it, um, it can be used in oncology um, IV forms, but we use oral dosages and most of our patients tolerate it reasonably well. Occasionally some gastrointestinal issues with mild nausea, but for the most part, people do tolerate it reasonably well. And we do see sometimes amazing results. A lot of the medications we use take time to affect their changes on the immune system. And that's something that's hard for patients to wrap their minds around when we initially start that it may take six to eight weeks to take effect. In the long run, methotrexate is safer to use than something like prednisone or steroid. We do have many of our patients, again, who've been on these medications, the methotrexate, for decades. We also have to monitor blood counts and liver tests on a regular basis, but we would never give just like a year's supply of medicine because if people took it and did have an elevated liver enzyme um, that was not caught early, that could be more serious. Uh, But anyway, we get really wonderful responses with methotrexate. Mm -hmm. Despite that, that doesn't improve everybody. And we do have quite a number of patients, and I would say more than half of our patients with rheumatoid arthritis are on also the biologic medications. And those are typically either IV or self-injectable drugs um, that target a specific cytokine or pathway, such as tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6, some T-cell or B-cell targets as well. We do find much greater effectiveness with those. They do all slow down the progression of the damage, and they do that um, a little more aggressively than methotrexate would. But with that comes a little bit of a price. I mean, every every medication, even Tylenol, has potential side effects. So we do see um, a slight increased risk for infection and a very slight increased risk for malignancy. So we do always have to make sure that people are aware of that. But the first biologic that we started using was Remicade and IV in 1998. So we really do at this point have, you know, over 20 years of experience, not with every single biologic, um, but we do have patients who have been on biologics for two decades. And we've not seen an overwhelming risk as far as that issue for infection and malignancy, although we're always aware of it. Right. Switching gears just a little bit, degenerative joint disease, total knees, total hips, that sort of thing. Anything that we should be thinking about when we're thinking about uh, pre-oping some of these folks? We do worry about, with our immune suppressant medications, an increased risk for either infection or the potential to interfere with wound healing. Typically with methotrexate, we will hold the medication a week before and a week after surgery. The most current guidelines, surprisingly, however, have done studies that show that patients will actually do well 
even without discontinuing the methotrexate. In some senses, we've been doing this for decades, kind of stopping the week before and week after. So I think it's still somewhat more standard of care that we are more common to stop it. But just making people aware of the current guidelines do allow for continuing it um, during the pre-op and post-op period. Um, the biologics are, are kind of similar issues for the self-injectables that are typically weekly or every other week. We often will do, stop it the week before, you know, in the week after to reduce that risk of infection. Yeah. It can be a little more complicated when people are on some of the infusions for the biologics. And some of them are given every four weeks and some are every eight weeks. And the overarching principle is that you don't want to have that biologic infusion and have your surgery the next day or have had it the prior day or what have you, right. um, just because that would greatly give you that big bolus of the immune suppressant. You wouldn't want that right near the time of surgery. So often we'll try to time it at the midpoint um, or a little later of the infusion cycle. So if someone was on an eight-week cycle, you know, something like four to six weeks um, after their infusion would be ideal. Mm -hmm. um, so that sometimes requires coordinating with the infusion suite and the surgeon's schedule. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it sounds like what we should probably do um, if someone does have a rheumatologic condition uh, and they're on some of these meds is to have a clearance through rheumatology through their rheumatologist before they have their procedure. Right. And I think that's not unreasonable. A lot of times I would say just in our practice informally, um, it is just sort of a, a portal message like, hey, surgery scheduled for, you know, four weeks, you know, what recommendations do you have for the medications? And then usually either, either we or the, the surgeon's medical assistant will um, communicate those um, recommendations to the patient. Um, there's certainly ones that I think everyone's aware of with the non-steroids stopping for bleeding risk, et cetera. Um, our patients on steroids, we can not stop those suddenly because that can precipitate an adrenal crisis. Right, but right. if we're aware that someone's having a surgery coming out, we certainly try to minimize their dose of steroid as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the steroids and the osteoporosis, certainly a consideration that we all have to think about, um, especially when it comes to joint arthroplasty. Dr. Bellhorn, I was hoping you might have a case study uh, that you could share with us and uh, something that we might see in clinic in an orthopedic clinic. Uh, if say someone who hasn't been diagnosed previously? Sure. So um, I, mean, I could share a case I think I saw recently of someone. This was a 32-year-old female who was um, six to eight weeks postpartum and started to begin having just some stiffness in the morning with her hands when she awoke and she was having some pain in her wrist and was having difficulty um, picking up her baby. And so she was seen actually at urgent care initially, was felt to have a wrist tendonitis and was given an injection and did have some improvement. But um, her symptoms continued to progress. Um, after a few months, she began having pain in the small joints of her hands and the small joints of her feet. And so kind of the light bulb went off. This is not just strictly about picking up the baby. This is starting to involve other joints. And there was concern that this could be a systemic disorder. So her uh, primary care saw her at that point and did order some of the screening laboratories that we had mentioned before. 
and she was found to have a positive rheumatoid factor, did not have the positive CCP, um, but was definitely concerned about the development of rheumatoid arthritis. There usually is a strong genetic predisposition um, for most of the autoimmune disorders, but then there may be certain triggers. Hormonal triggers are quite common, and rheumatoid arthritis is one that we certainly can see develop in the postpartum period. Also, sometimes postmenopausal, we can see a, a peak where presentation may develop at that time. But sometimes with rheumatoid arthritis, you can have this evolving or stuttering course where you'll have one or two joints or joint areas affected initially. And in this case, it was bilateral risk. One was worse than the other. So we can see different presentations. Sometimes it's dramatic and sudden in onset with a, a polyarthritis that's less common. Um, more common, it is somewhat insidious and what we call evolving, that you'll have a few joints develop over a few weeks and then a few months. People have the, I call it the explain it away syndrome, um, that sometimes people will say, oh, well, maybe I did too much housework, too much gardening, too much whatever it may have been. Um, but then eventually they will realize, hey, something's going on here. So, so just kind of being aware that, you know, when you start to see multiple joints, if you see somebody back the second time and different joints are being involved, certain clues that might lead you to suspect or immune or systemic disorder. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Bailhorn, I appreciate uh, your time today. Sure. Specialties that are close to us, we we're aware of things, but we you know, don't really know that much about it. So I, I really appreciate your time and hopefully this will be helpful for our listeners. So you're certainly welcome. I enjoy talking to you. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery is a professional organization dedicated to providing common direction for PAs in orthopedics. Learn more about membership at paos.org.